There's an unconfirmed but intriguing story surrounding the painting of Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece, The Last Supper. I think you're all familiar with the painting where Jesus is in the middle of that big long table and the 12 disciples on either side. And the painting is meant to capture the faces of all the, the disciples the moment Jesus tells them that one of them will betray him. Well, the story goes that as da Vinci commenced work on this painting, he had a, a serious quarrel with another painter. And he was so angry and bitter that he chose to paint the face of his enemy, the other painter, into the face of Judas. So that way, as people passed by and would scoff and sneer at the traitor Judas, they'd really be reviling this enemy of da Vinci's, whom everyone would have recognized at the time. Da Vinci painted all of the apostles' faces first, and then he got to Christ last of all. But he hit a roadblock. He couldn't progress. Something was holding him back and frustrating his efforts. And he finally realized it was the face of his enemy staring at him in the painting that he had painted onto Judas. He just couldn't bring himself to paint the face of Christ and everything that his face is supposed to represent in a painting, while at the same time holding on to such bitterness and anger. So he brought himself to redo the face of Judas, and then he was able to finish the face of Christ. Now, this story is not 100% verified, but still, it's quite a fitting illustration of the high price of unforgiveness. It is impossible to paint the face of Christ, to imitate Christ, while at the same time holding on to enmity and hatred. When you hold on to a grudge, when you give in to bitterness and anger, when you refuse to forgive, you feel vindicated, you feel like you're doing the right thing. I mean, after all, the other person, they've got to pay somehow for what they've done. You've got to make them pay. But in reality, you are the one who ends up paying. By not forgiving the other person, your relationship with them is being damaged. And perhaps unbeknownst to you, your relationship with God is being damaged as well. An unforgiving spirit quenches his spirit. Love, joy, and peace will quickly move out, while strife, anxiety, bitterness will quickly move in to your heart. It has rightly been said that unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. Unforgiveness is a bitter pill to swallow. You take it, you think it's going to make you feel better, but in the end it settles in your stomach and like acid it eats away at you from from the inside. It's probably not surprising to you, but sin is a relationship killer. Sin kills relationships, both your relationship with others and your relationship with God. And the only hope of repairing the damage done by sin is forgiveness. Not vengeance, not revenge, but forgiveness. And for believers, God graciously deals with our sin, not by demanding payment, but by providing payment through Christ, and thereby releasing us from payment. And he expects us now to do the same. But when you turn around and you demand payment from others who have sinned against you, it's like you're scorning the kindness that God has shown you. And if you think that won't affect your relationship with God, well, you are mistaken. And today from the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see specifically how you, by not forgiving others, how that affects your relationship with God. And hopefully this will become both a warning and an encouragement for you to simply to forgive others in the same way that God has forgiven us. Although that is very often a hard thing to do, it is the blessed thing to do. So we return to Mark 11 this morning. So take your Bibles and open them 
together with me to Mark chapter 11. We are resuming the text. We started last week where Jesus is teaching on prayer, only now he's bringing us to the intersection of prayer and forgiveness in Mark chapter 11. Starting in verse 20, we've entered the third day in Christ's final week in Jerusalem. It's most likely Tuesday morning. He will be crucified on Friday. It's just a few days away. But we'll be camping out in day three for quite some time, at least as far as Mark's gospel is concerned. Shortly in verse 27, he will be re-entering the temple to teach, and he'll be spending quite a bit of time teaching in that temple such that the rest of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13 takes place on day three. So we're going to be in day three for a little while here in Mark's gospel. But at the moment... Where we're at, he's en route to the temple on day three. Every evening, he did not spend the night in Jerusalem, but he left town, went to Bethany a couple miles away, and spent the night. And in the morning, he and the disciples would get up and head to the temple. But on day three, they're stopped in their tracks on the road by the sight of this dead fig tree. The fig tree he had cursed the day before. And as we learned over the past several weeks, Jesus was really using this fig tree as an object lesson for Israel and her dead, hypocritical religion. The cursing of the fig tree was really prefiguring the cursing of the temple. And likewise, the destruction of the fig tree was really prefiguring the destruction of the temple. There would be no reform for Israel's hypocritical religion, but at this point, only judgment. From the fig tree and from the temple, Jesus gives a poignant lesson on what God thinks of dead hypocritical religion. But that lesson at the time mostly flies over the head of the disciples. They're they're not going to understand all this until later, until after the coming of the Holy Spirit. And for now, when they see the dead fig tree, they're more taken aback by the effectiveness of Christ's curse. They're amazed that his words carried so much power. They really shouldn't be so surprised to see his power or his word come true, though. And so, Jesus sees this as another teaching opportunity and he shifts the conversation to prayer and faith. And so he says in verse 22 in response to their astonishment at the dead fig tree, he says, have faith in God. They really shouldn't be so surprised to see the effectiveness of God's power or the fulfillment of God's word, that that it comes true. Rather, they should come to expect it and to count on it. They should also rely on God's word and God's power working in their lives because that's what they need. They need his power working in their lives. Prayer is the means of accessing God's limitless power in our lives so that we may live according to his will. But not just any prayer. Heartless, meaningless, repetitious prayer counts for nothing. It's not enough to just go through the motions. Rather, Jesus here in this text gives two essential requirements for power, powerful prayer. And that's what we started into last week. These two essential requirements for powerful prayer. And we only managed to get through the first last time, but that is believing. Number one is believing. You must first be believing to have powerful prayer. You have to have full Faith in God, not doubting in your heart His word, His will, His power, His faithfulness. And instead, as you ask and pray according to His will, believe in Him, count on Him, trust Him, and and He will 
respond. You must ask, and number one, you must be believing. And so last week our focus was on verses 23 and 24. Let's read those again of Mark chapter 11. He says to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. And we covered all this last week, but that is the first requirement for for prayer that matters, prayer that God uh, honors, and that is believing. You must be believing. There's a second requirement given, though, in verses 25 and 26, and we we save this one for special treatment because it's so relevant to our daily lives. And the second essential requirement for powerful prayer, which we're going to cover with all of our time today, is forgiving. You must also be forgiving. And at this point, we're just going to pick up where we left off last time and see a continuation of Christ's teaching on prayer, only this time how prayer and forgiveness come together. If you want prayer that is heard, prayer that can access God's power in order to do God's will, which is what Christ is talking about here, then secondly, he says you must be forgiving. And so let's keep going. We're in the same text, but we're reading the next little statement in verses 25 and 26. So let's finish these off. He says next, verse 25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions transgressions. This morning, all we're going to do is study and apply these two little verses. But don't worry, they provide plenty to chew on when it comes to prayer and forgiveness. And to help you digest a little bit more, I'm going to give you four sub-points when it comes to the second requirement for powerful prayer, just to help you follow along. And so as we study, we said about forgiving. First, consider the context of forgiveness. Number one, the context of forgiveness. And simple enough, these verses come in the context of prayer, namely Jesus teaching on prayer. Something about forgiving others, or the lack thereof, is going to impact our relationship with God, and therefore, our prayers to God. And if this whole text in Mark chapter 11 sounds familiar, it should. We made the point last time that a lot of what Jesus says here on prayer, really, it's like an echo of what he said earlier on prayer, from the Sermon on the Mount. For example, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus highlighted praying according to God's will, which we talked about last week. And you remember how it goes. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not our will, but his will be done. If you you are to be heard in prayer, you have to pray in faith, and you must pray according to his will. Well, it's not surprising to find another link to the Lord's Prayer and what Jesus says here on forgiveness. If you want to be heard in prayer, you must also pray with a forgiving spirit. That's also an echo from the Lord's Prayer. Remember, he said, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then right after that, he says, 
For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So, this is not a new link between prayer and forgiveness, specifically God forgiving us only if we forgive others. And we're going to explore that link later on, but for now, just, just file away that this statement on forgiveness takes place in a context of prayer. And also note, this is, as re- this is relevant as often as you pray. It's not a one-time consideration, something you only have to worry about once. He says, whenever you stand praying, anytime, Every time you need to be putting into practice what he's talking about here. Whatever it is Jesus has to say about prayer and forgiveness, these are standing orders. This applies all the time. So keep that in mind as well. This comes into play as often as you pray. This is the context of the forgiveness he's talking about. Secondly, the command of forgiveness. First, the context of forgiveness. Secondly, the command of forgiveness. And this is a command. He says in verse 25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. It's just a, a plain old command. Forgive. We are being commanded to forgive. But we've got to stop here a little bit and really ask, well, what does that mean, to forgive? Because people, they, they get that quite wrong. There are many misconceptions about what it means, biblically speaking, to forgive someone. So what does it mean, biblically, to forgive? And can we start off by just clearing up what it doesn't mean? Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not just a warm feeling inside you have for someone when, when everything becomes better. You know, let's say your spouse sins against you, and in the moment, you don't feel too many good feelings toward them. But some time passes, it kind of blows over, the warm feelings return. But that's not forgiveness. You may feel better, but that's not the same thing as forgiveness being exchanged. Forgiveness is not a feeling. And along those lines, forgiveness is also not forgetting. Can you please just erase from your mind the whole notion of forgive and forget? Because it's just nonsense. You can't forget. If someone really sins against you and hurts you, you're not going to forget it. God doesn't forget. He's omniscient. He can't forget. Rather, when people say they're forgiving and forgetting, what that really means is, They're sweeping all their feelings under the rug and hoping they never come up again. But this isn't really forgiveness. And most times, guess what happens? All those offenses you said you forgot about, they manage to come up again in the future. It turns out you didn't forget them at all, and now they're being used as ammunition in a future argument. You didn't really forget. But forgiveness isn't even forgetting. Now, to balance that, I should also say forgiveness is also not holding on to things. It's not holding on to things. People get this wrong as well. Some people, they don't even pretend to forget. They just hold on, but they think they're forgiving. And so their forgiveness comes with all these subtle ways of of holding on and even getting back at the person. Yeah, I'll forgive you, but I don't want to talk to you anymore. Or I'll forgive you, but I'll be sure to let everyone know what you did. Or I'll forgive you, but this isn't the last you've heard of this. None of that's forgiveness. None of that counts as forgiveness. And the problem with these people is they won't let past offenses go, and they continue to hold them against others, even secretly, even many years later, they come up again. 
Forgiveness, it's not a feeling. It's not forgetting. It's also not holding on to past offenses. So what is it? Forgiveness, it's a decision. It's not a feeling, but it's an action. It's an act of the will. Forgetting is passive. Forgiveness is active. It's something that's active. It's a conscious and active decision or choice. And what kind of a choice are we talking about? We're talking about choosing to release someone from the guilt and penalty they incurred by sinning. It's where you are not making them pay at all. You're releasing them from the guilt and the penalty they incurred by sinning. It really helps. We're trying to find out what forgiveness is biblically, looking at the, the biblical words used to talk about forgiveness. In Mark 11, when he says forgive here, it's a Greek word ephemi. And it carries the basic meaning of to leave something, to leave it behind, to give it away, to send it away. And when this word is applied to sin or an offense, it means to to leave the offense. You're you're sending it away, you're pardoning it, you're canceling it. You're letting the offense go in the sense of not demanding payment. When someone sins against you, you want to make them pay. You do. Your flesh wants to make them pay. And forgiveness is where you release them from that payment. You're not going to make them pay in any way. Another common word for forgiveness in the Bible is charizomai. Talking about a grace gift, just showing someone favor freely, unconditionally. And along these lines, forgiveness is where you are showing someone undeserved favor by releasing them from from that debt. You are not giving them what they deserve. You are instead giving them what they don't deserve, kindness. It's grace, it's mercy, it's forgiveness. Forgiveness Forgiveness like this is costly. When someone sins against you, even the Bible, even the Lord's Prayer, you talked about this image of a debt. It's like they've incurred a debt before you. They sin against you, they're now in debt to you. And you want to make them pay back that debt. You want to make them pay back every last penny. And how do most people take payments? You're in debt. You offended me. You're going to have to pay. How do we make people pay when they sin against us? There's many ways. One way is by bringing up the wrong in the future, trying to make the other person feel bad for what they did over and over again, trying to get mileage out of their offense. And really, how can I use this to make them really feel bad about what they did? Their past debt becomes a weapon of guilt in the future. Other people take payment for the sins of others by treating them harshly. Maybe you'll give them the cold shoulder. Maybe you just give them the silent treatment. Whatever it is, trying to make them pay. Maybe you withhold kindness. I'm not going to give you a ride to the airport. Don't you remember what you did to me yesterday? Most people try and make people pay back their sins, though, just by getting them back. Just straight up retaliation. That's what happens most of the time. You yelled at me, I'm going to yell at you. You called me names, I'm going to call you names. You hurt me, well, I'm going to hurt you. Just trying to make them pay. That's pretty much the definition of vengeance and revenge, though, and revenge doesn't pay. You think you're making the other person pay, but it doesn't work. It only results in you going into debt yourself. Because by that response, you are now sinning and you are now in debt to them, so to speak. It doesn't work. It doesn't solve anything. And of course, the real problem with such an unforgiving attitude for Christians is 
God. We have that whole thing to worry about. You know, God. Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. But then for us to go around and not forgive others, to withhold forgiveness from others, that's, that's a terrible inconsistency. That, that shouldn't happen. That doesn't make sense for us. So you are infinitely in debt before a perfectly holy God, yet instead of demanding payment, God provided payment for you. Instead of making you pay for your sins, by grace, he sent Jesus to pay for your sins so that you would be released from that payment and forgiven. And so the real question is for believers who, who have had this happen to you, how can you not show others the same grace? That's what it boils down to. How can you not treat others the same way? And you say, but wait, what about justice? This person, they really offended me and, and justice needs to be served. And you know what? That's true. That, that's absolutely true. Justice does need to be served. All wrongs need to be made right. But the issue is, you're not the judge. You're not perfectly just. You're not perfectly righteous. You're a sinner yourself. You don't qualify to be that arbiter, that judge. Only God is. So ultimately, you have to leave justice up to Him. You are not to take justice into your own hands. Vengeance and revenge are not options on the table for Christians because we trust God to right all wrongs in the end. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, 17 through 21, he says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. As Christians, we ultimately count on God, His divine authority to right all wrongs. As a side note, I will mention, there is a role for civil authority. Sometimes someone sins against you in such a serious manner, in a societal manner, that there, there needs to be consequences, and that's where we rely on civil authority for justice. And Paul, right after Romans 12, in the very beginning of Romans 13, talks about civil authority. After divine authority, he upholds civil authority as well. Romans 13, verse 1, he says right after that, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Verse 4, he says, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So just to be clear, forgiveness does not mean you have to jettison justice. But it does mean that we don't take such justice into our own hands. God will judge. Hopefully, the government will judge. But ultimately, our hope and our trust is in God to make all things right in the end. It's not, it's not our place. We are called simply to forgive. In all honesty, though, the real challenge comes in dealing with people on a relational level where they offend you without breaking any laws. You can't make them pay you back. You can't make them make things right. You're also not going to make things better by resorting to bitterness and anger. You ultimately have to trust God to right all wrongs. And so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
It's not always possible because you can't control the other person. You can't make them reconcile. But as so far as it's up to you, be at peace with all men. You can control yourself. You can control your response to their sin. And this is where forgiveness is involved and it precludes fighting sin with sin. And Paul ends Romans 12 and he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's going to include the command to forgive. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a choice, a decision to release the other person from the penalty of their sin against you. And you're just entrusting all judgment to God. And that is so not easy. That is really hard to do. Because our flesh just cries out, we want them to pay, but we are not the judge. That's why we have to be told to forgive, because it's not easy. But for those who have received God's forgiveness for free, it comes down to how can we not show others the same grace? This is the command of forgiveness. Now moving on back in Mark 11, thirdly, the comprehensiveness of forgiveness I want to point this out after the command of forgiveness. Number three, the comprehensiveness of forgiveness. Look again at verse 25. Look how how widespread this is. He says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone. Sounds pretty comprehensive. Anything against anyone. Are there any limits on this forgiveness here? No. Is any offense excluded? Any person excluded? See, as hard as it may be sometimes, we are called to God's standard of forgiveness. And there is no sin that stands outside the reach of His grace. God's grace is greater than all of our sins, both in number and in magnitude. And we're being called to that same level of forgiveness. Again, it's hard. But that's the comprehensiveness of the command. Anyone, any person, any offense. And I should point out, every person is covered. We are to forgive anything against anyone. No personal exceptions given. From strangers to relatives, spouses to children, there's no exceptions on who you are called to forgive. Anything against anyone. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you find it you know, relatively easy to forgive strangers, a little bit harder to forgive relatives? I don't know what it is. Some people, they're just, they really have a hard time forgiving a relative. It's usually the spouse or sibling or a parent. And why is this? We need to realize unforgiveness is a compounding problem. It's like a snowball. It's rolling down that mountain. It starts small. But over time, unchecked, it will build up steam and size and speed and magnitude. And if someone sins against you and you refuse to forgive them, so you're holding a little grudge in in your heart, and so now you're carrying that offense around and the little snowball starts to head down the mountain. And pretty soon they sin against you again and you refuse to forgive them again. And so now you're carrying around two offenses. And the snowball builds some speed. And do you see a problem here, the way this is going? And what happens if this continues for decades? There are people like that. That's how some people get, especially in marriages where even now the smallest offense is like the unforgivable sin. 
Why? Because what they're really holding on to is a whole past lifetime of sins. And this snowball of unforgiveness is now the size of a mountain. And it, it will simply destroy the relationship. No one, no one can live under the weight of all their past sins. Everything we've ever done wrong, forget about it. And if you have someone like that and you refuse to forgive them for all their past sins, your relationship will end. It's just There's no way you can survive. That relationship will survive. But instead, we are to forgive constantly, continually, repeatedly, comprehensively. Don't even give the snowball a chance. Just every sin, wipe it away and forgive. Like Jesus said to Peter, how many times do we have to do this? Like seven times? Now try seven times 70. And he didn't mean 490. He meant every time. Every time. All sins, all people, anything against anyone. Unless you think that this isn't that big of a deal, finally, understand that your own forgiveness is conditioned on your forgiveness of others. Number four, lastly, the condition of forgiveness. The condition of forgiveness. Let's read these two verses again, 25, 26. Whenever you stand praying, he says, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your, you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. I want you to hone in on the word, so that. Verse 25. Jesus commands us to forgive, so that God will forgive us. And the forgiveness Jesus is talking about here is a two-way street. If you forgive others, God will forgive you. If you do not forgive others, God will not forgive you. Now when you hear that, I bet most of you think, that sounds off. That doesn't sound right. Because we're so used to hearing about God's like unconditional forgiveness. But this is conditional. So what, what's Jesus talking about? What, what type of forgiveness is, is Jesus talking about here? Well, first off, it's very clear that Jesus is not talking about the forgiveness that accompanies salvation. That is a once-for-all forgiveness that is not based on works but faith. One of my favorite verses, Colossians 3, or I'm sorry, Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All your sins written down, nailed to the cross, all forgiven. All. Not just a few. All of them. Jesus made total, complete, and final payment for sins through his death on the cross. And if you're saved, that means all of your sins have been paid for. Past, present, future, all of them forgiven. And that's what Jesus offers, and that's a good offer. Because it is those sins that are keeping us from a relationship with God. They separate us from God. They're going to bring us to judgment. We have a debt because of our sin. We can't pay back. There's no way. You can't pay it back. You can't work it out. Good works won't help you. Your only hope is forgiveness. But how do you receive forgiveness? Well, through faith. Payment must be made. 
Jesus made the payment. We receive the benefit just by, by faith, by counting on him. Acts 10.43 says, Of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's how you're forgiven. You have to see your sin. You have to be broken over your sin. You have to realize how hopeless you are because you deserve judgment. But then you must see the sinless Son of God who has made payment on your behalf. And then you must look to Him to save you. You must believe in Him, trust Him, cry out to Him for mercy, for forgiveness, for, for grace. And the good news is Jesus promises to answer all those who ask in faith. And when you do this, God saves you from the wrath to come. Your sins are paid for. You're forgiven. You're cleansed entirely, apart from works, just by faith. And so it's very clear from what the Bible says about salvation that the forgiveness Jesus speaks of here is not the forgiveness at salvation. He's not talking about that once for all salvation or that once for all forgiveness at salvation that cannot be lost or undone. And that's equally clear from the words Jesus uses himself in the text. In this prayer that Jesus talks about in Mark 11, it's a it's a repeated continual thing. It's something that happens all the time. In view here is not a salvation prayer, but a daily prayer. Such that as long as we harbor unforgiveness, our daily prayers will be ineffective. And so what Jesus is talking about here, forgiveness-wise, it's not at salvation. He's talking about relational forgiveness. Forgiveness of our daily sins, which disrupt our fellowship with God. And let me give that a little explanation as well. As Christians, we're saved, but do we still sin? Yes, yes we do. You should be saying yes. Yes, you do. In this life, yes. Do these sins unsave us? No, that, that's not possible. No, they don't. Do they negate our ultimate forgiveness? No. That doesn't make them okay, but God's grace is greater than our sin. Still, what is the impact of our ongoing sin as Christians? Well, as we continue to sin, our relationship with God is not lost. That's not even possible now if you're truly saved. But our relationship with God is disrupted. It is disrupted. Our sin disables us from enjoying fellowship with God. And so we need to repent daily, as often as we sin, so as to be daily cleansed and made right with God. That doesn't make, fully make sense. Here's an illustration I use often. Let's picture a father and a son. And they get into a fight. They're calling names. They're yelling. They're throwing things at one another. And finally, they decide to split and just cool down. Now, during this time, they're just taking a little break. Are they still father and son? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that can't change. No matter what kind of fight, I mean, they're father and son. That's not going to change. But is their relationship right? Well, no. no that their love, their fellowship has been disrupted because of their sin. They can't be all buddy-buddy until forgiveness and repentance takes place. They must exchange forgiveness for their relationship to be reconciled and their joy in that relationship to be restored. 
It's the same way with us and with God, except that we're the only ones doing the sinning. At salvation, if your faith is real, God adopts you. You become his child, and he your father, and that's a permanent adoption. That can't be undone. But when you sin, you're still his child, but your relationship with your father gets distorted, gets disrupted. And I bet you you've probably experienced this before. As a Christian, you know there are times you're in sin. If you ever try and read your Bible or pray when you're in sin, it, just, it, it shouldn't work. It doesn't work unless you're just a phony. But you, your conscience starts to bug you. You realize that I, I can't do this. You sense that disruption because you're holding on to sin, but you're trying to commune with God. It doesn't work. It's not supposed to work. You need to be made right with God, and that looks like you repenting as often as you sin. And thankfully, God is so gracious that he provides this cleansing, this restoration as often as we ask. And that's the promise of 1 John 1.9. It's not a salvation promise. This is a Christian life daily promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it is this daily, continual repentance and forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here in, in Mark chapter 11. Same as the Lord's Prayer, where we're taught to pray often for forgiveness. And that forgiveness is conditional. That is conditional. Being daily cleansed is conditioned first on your repentance. Isn't that what First John says? If we confess our sins, he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's conditioned upon you asking humbly for forgiveness. And here's the thing. Mark 11 is giving us a second condition to this daily forgiveness, this daily cleansing and restoration with God as often as we sin. Another condition for receiving this cleansing from the Lord is forgiving others. If you let sin hinder your relationship with others, well, that sin will also hinder your relationship with God. If you willingly want to keep your hands dirty, God's not going to cleanse you. And do you realize why that is? Why is it that God won't forgive you if you refuse to forgive others? Why is that? It's not that hard to figure out, especially when you realize that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. When you refuse to forgive others, that's pretty much the definition of pride. But you say, no, you don't know what they did to me. They really need to pay. They really offended me. But wait a second, Christian. Yes, maybe you were greatly offended, but how did God treat you even though you greatly offended him? You see, he released you from your debt even at a great sacrificial cost. Even though you were his enemy, he went to great lengths to pay your debt for you and to release you, to forgive you for free. By grace, you get forgiveness through what Christ did, not through anything you did. He released you. And in case you don't know, your sin against him was much greater than someone else's sin against you. So where is your humility before God and even others like yourself? Are you now a perfect, sinless judge? No. But in pride, you're acting like one. 
when you judge others, you're, you're acting like one. It's just pride. And this pride is cutting you off from God's grace. God's grace doesn't go away. It's still there. You're saved, but you are disabling yourself from receiving it. And keep in mind, when you ask God for this daily forgiveness, what are you asking for? You've sinned, you know you've done wrong, and you repent. What are you asking Him for? You're asking Him for grace, just for more undeserved favor. Lord, I've sinned. I deserve judgment. So thankful for Christ that He's spared me. Would you please cleanse me just, just by grace? That is undeserved favor. And God will say yes every time. You pray that genuinely from the heart. But do you see a problem when you refuse to turn around and show others the same undeserved favor? It's like, I'll ask for it from God, but I'm not going to give it to them. See a problem there? Yeah, I, think, I think you do. Even if you're thinking, this other person, they really deserve my anger and my wrath and my vengeance. They don't deserve to be pardoned. But do you forget that you really deserved God's anger and wrath and vengeance? You did not deserve to be pardoned. But mercy is defined as giving people what they don't deserve and not giving people what they do deserve. Grace and mercy. And thank God he showed you grace. God will judge. If someone really deserves justice, God will judge. He will make all things right in the end. We just have to trust that. But since you and I are sinners as well, we're simply called to trust him and to forgive. Ephesians 4, 31, 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. All of it, put it away. But verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. That's our standard. I said it before, I'll say it again, it's, it's so hard. We are being called to forgive others in the same way that God through Christ has forgiven us. That is hard. And I'll tell you, really, it's only going to happen as a consequence of the new birth. Because you can't fake that type of forgiveness. It's just too hard. Only those who have been forgiven can forgive like this. If you're out there and you find yourself having a hard time forgiving someone in your life, then you need to turn to Christ if you haven't already. You need to reflect on the forgiveness you've received in Him. Forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you struggle forgiveness, your only hope is to go back and remember how God in Christ has forgiven you and let that spur you on to treat others the same way. Can you just finish retelling the story that Jesus told in, in Matthew 18 about forgiveness? you remember that? I bet a lot of you do. He tells a story about this king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. One slave was brought in who owed him 10,000 talents. If you don't know what that is, it's, it's just crazy. It's like 150,000 years of wages. 150,000 years of wages. It, it's crazy. And needless to say, the slave could not pay him back. Like, obviously. So the king orders the slave and his whole family to be sold. Just be done with it. He's not going to get the money back, so whatever. But when the slave hears this, he falls to the ground. He starts begging and he says, Please, have patience with me. I will repay you everything. He's asking for mercy. When the king hears this, remember how he feels? 
The king is moved to compassion. And he doesn't make the slave repay, but he simply says, you're free, free to go. He releases him of the entire debt and he sends him on his way. And it's amazing grace that the king shows, just forgiven of all the debt. But do you remember what happens next? The same slave went out and he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And that's about a hundred days wages. It's significant, but it's nothing compared to 10,000 talents. But he takes his fellow slave and he seizes him and he begins to choke him and says, pay back what you owe. And the fellow slave, he too falls down and he begs and he says the same thing. He says, please, have patience, I'll repay everything. The first slave was unwilling and he threw him in prison until he should pay back everything he owed. Slave labor. The king heard about this. And so he summoned back that first slave. You remember what he said to him. I'll now start reading for you Matthew 18, starting at verse 32. The king said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus says at the end, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And can Jesus be any clearer about what God thinks of those who refuse to forgive others? Honestly, if you refuse to show grace and forgiveness, it's just evidence that maybe you haven't received grace and forgiveness yourself. Because God's grace compels us to show grace to others. It's hard, but if you've received it, you'll give it. And after all this, can you just imagine, what if the same slave went back to the king and asked for some more favor after all this happened? Do you think the king wants to hear anything from the slave? Like, just get out of my, I'm not going to listen to you. And likewise, our prayers are hindered if we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts. Some Christians, they, they refuse to forgive, but then they turn around, they pray, they ask God for something, and they wonder why they get no response. But if we forgive, we open ourselves up to God's grace. And this leads to powerful living and powerful prayer, which is what Jesus is talking about. We also desperately need God, the King's power, working in, our through, working in and through our lives if we are to live for Him, like we learned last week. That power comes through prayer, not just any prayer. Jesus says you must be believing, and then secondly, you must be forgiving. Then pray, then ask, then you will receive all of God's power to do what He calls you to do. So let us all take Christ's teaching to heart. Let it remind us, challenge us, convict us, that we may be humble so as to forgive others, and that we may be open to receiving God's grace and power in our lives through prayer, which we all so desperately need. May be forgiving of others. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be 
your name and we praise your name for your forgiveness, the grace, the mercy, the love, and the kindness you showed us on the cross. We can't deny that though we had sinned against you, forget 10,000 talents, try infinite. We had so much debt before you because of our sin and we cannot repay. There's, there's no chance. We would simply be left to pay for our sins in hell forever for all eternity. But simply because you loved us for your own glory, you sent Christ to die on the cross to pay for our sins, even to rise from the dead so that we could be forgiven, so that he could offer this total forgiveness. And as he cried out on the cross, it is finished. We can say if our faith is in him, it's finished. Our sins are gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us, Lord. We, we have to remember this all the time. We need to bring this up all the time. We need to be seeing this in Scripture all the time and praying this all the time, reflecting on a redemption. Not only is this the basis of our salvation, our standing, our relationship with you, Lord, but it's also the basis of our relationship with others and especially our forgiveness of others. We're sinners. We sin against others. They will sin against us. Sin continues to attack our relationships. But our only hope is not vengeance to make others pay, but to be like you, are, our Father in heaven, who, who made payment and who released us from debt. May we do the same. Convict us with this teaching on forgiveness and may we follow through lest we hinder our relationship with you by not forgiving. We even pray for greater strength and boldness and power and compassion because sometimes it's hard to forgive. But even now, give us grace to forgive like you have forgiven. Offer your glory that we might live for you. It's in Christ's name we pray now. Amen.